0: your discussion group sound quite good just keep going (laughs) great any interesting points from them you want to share
1: yeah well
2: I don't know some of the the people in the group agreed and some didn't but it seemed like to me that um, you know with the courage that it's kind of coupled with Fear as well, because to have courage, you're kind of overcoming
1: these, this fearful stuff. So it kind of seemed like the courage goes hand in hand
2: with fear. Because I've had experiences where people said, "Oh, well, you did, what you did was very courageous," but I didn't have uh, fear, and so it didn't seem courageous to me. Mm. But they were. The, these were things that they were
1: fearful and so they saw my actions as very courageous mm-hmm.
0: so that was really interesting that it's kind of this relative thing on yeah well one person sees as courageous another person doesn't hmm. yeah and it often corresponds to the level of fear which is why I asked what's the relationship between courage and fear
2: I think uh, the path is courage or courage is the path to so say the, the courage <laughs> is what? <laughs> oh. I something about well I thought
1: that
0: um, the whole path just courage Ah, ah. why does the path require courage? well in my experience uh, to hold
1: to
2: just and be aware of not to act on them, but to enter so the exploration of self
1: and take up
2: mm-hmm. to be discomfort uh, and Yeah. Yeah. People, could you hear it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You agree?
0: The worldly courage and Dharma courage are quite different, aren't they? Mm-hmm.
2: To me, it was funny what my mind did when you brought up the Bodhisattva's courage. Because it seemed like I hadn't realized how so everything I was thinking of before that was kind of all based on me, you know, and my situations and kind of the small mind in a way. And then when you said something about the Bodhisattva's courage, it was like, <laughs> Others. <laughs> 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 mm.
0: yeah how easy it is for us to get stuck in our fears and the courage to overcome our things and here the bodhisattva's courage is huge isn't it does the thinking of a huge courage help you develop courage and get over your small fears yeah. I find it quite helpful yeah. when I get just meditate on my small fears I get so stuck when I think very big like a bodhisattva it's like oh
1: okay yeah. the state of
2: mind of bodhisattva is fear still a part of the makeup?
0: okay so is fear still part of a bodhisattva's makeup Um, bodhisattvas might have Fear of um, losing their bodhicitta. Yeah. Fear of uh, sen- other sentient beings suffering. Fear of uh, wrong realizations. But their fear isn't like our fear. Yeah. There's two kinds of fear. There's, there's panicky, self-centered, freaked-out fear. That's what she's, you know... With, and that kind of courage that, that we go to counteract it and then there's a, 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 a wisdom fear you know that clearly sees dangers and wants to avoid them so different kinds of fear mm-hmm.
2: We're thinking about um, courage and confidence um, I just made the statement that um, the way that the mind works I don't have to have any confidence in something, but if I familiarize and do it, it will still transform my mind. And I find that very helpful when I'm um, kind of stuck. I'll I'll practice something from the path of mind-training something, even if I, you know, there's a part of my mind that doesn't believe it's going to work, but if I keep doing it, you mm-hmm. see that the mind transforms. Mm-hmm. So I don't have to have a strong confidence in things to still change.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, in a way, you, you may not have confidence in that particular method, but you do have confidence in the fact that the Buddhist methods usually work yes. Yes. and that familiarization will help you. Yes. Yeah
2: maybe not confidence in me but if I you know
0: that I could change But if I just step mm. into it so okay okay so you saying, well when we lack confidence in our own ability then take uh, have faith that just the practice of familiarity will work yeah. yeah yeah and that's very true you know the more we familiarize ourselves with something the more it's going to go in there
2: Mm-hmm. is that why you asked about the question how its courage relates to laziness because I, I
1: don't really see how those two things
0: oh okay. okay so why did I ask about why courage relates to laziness because I see that uh, it requires um, if I'm lazy I'm not going to be courageous if I'm lazy I'm just going to be complacent I'm going to be satisfied with what's going on and I'm not going to try anything that um, requires any more effort or might challenge, my self-centered thought, you know. So the, the mind gets um, very stagnant with laziness. And I think courage is a very active mind, you know. That's why I asked about it, and also because one of the forms of laziness is um, uh, discouragement or putting ourselves down. Yeah. So when we put ourselves down and don't have any confidence in ourselves, then you know the courage is lacking. And I think courage is is some willingness to just just try and see what happens. For those of us who, who like to control everything, you know, courage can be difficult because we don't want to do anything unless we know we can control everything. Yeah? And uh, what can we ever control? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But But if we kind of just try instead of boxing boxing ourselves in, I mean, because that's what laziness does it, it boxes us, us in. It says, You know, I'm incapable. The path is too hard. The goal's too high. There's nothing I can do because, you know, I'm just trash anyway. There's nothing I can do. There's no options. There's no choices. I'm just like a disaster. (sighs) That's a lazy mind. Mm -hmm. So that, that that mind, thats lazy is... Lacking in the energy of courage. We've kind of given up on ourselves when we actually, in fact, have so much incredible potential. There's no reason to give up on ourselves. There's no reason to put ourselves down and to,
2: to say, oh,
0: woe is me, you know. I'm all trapped, I'm boxed in. But that's the way we so often think. Isn't
2: it? You know.
0: Oh, I want to do this. Oh, but I can't. Can't. This is wrong. That's wrong. The situation. You know. There's all these outside hindrances. Then there's all these inside hindrances. Then I'll oh, just forget it. And yet we have this precious human life. How can we forget a precious human life? So this is this is all function of the. Uh, self-centered
2: mind. When I was thinking about business, I, think I was thinking about when mm-hmm. accepting the eight worldly concerns as the most important, that would be a form of laziness. Uh-huh. Courage is having the conviction
1: to turn away from those. Yeah. Pursue, uh-huh. um, supported
0: by the rest of the world. Right. Right. Yeah, I think that's a very good point because the eight worldly concerns. When we act out of the eight mm-hmm. worldly concerns. That's the usual way of doing things in the world. And if you have anger and upset or greed or whatever because of those eight, and everybody understands it and everybody thinks what you're feeling is quite normal and natural and valid. I mean, if they're on the other side of it, if you took their thing because of greed, they may think you're bad, but you know, if, but if people. You know, they're greedy, too. And so, well, greed is just kind of the way of the world, and what else is new? Um, and so it's very easy just to accept the eight worldly concerns and just kind of live our life with them. And it takes tremendous courage to actually go against them for, for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, when we're going against the eight worldly concerns, our old friends look at us like we're nuts, you know what you you don't want to have your own house what you're not gonna buy this new latest whatever thing, thing that everybody has you know sometimes the you know our friends and our family they think we're just foolish and stupid, and that we're unsuccessful. Oh, you don't want these things because you're a flake and you you can't make enough money to get them anyway. Oh, you don't want a relationship because you're just you have problems
1: <laughs>
0: you know you can't relate to other people so you're rejecting relationships because of that you know so one of the things where it requires courage to get a, go over the eight worldly concerns is to deal with family and friends you know telling you you're nuts another element that requires courage is to face our own attachment our own anger you know because the eight worldly concerns are the usual way we run our lives from morning to night, don't you think? Eight worldly concerns all day long. All day long. It's usually one of the eight functioning. And to face ourselves and really see that these things are disadvantages, that they bring suffering, You know that they're not going to lead us towards our spiritual goals, to actually face that requires a lot of courage. So there we're facing our own inner stuff. Like when I was telling the story of the Buddha's life with the Mara's hordes, you know, and his armies and the the beautiful women, you know, that it's facing our own attachment and, and anger and other afflictions. And that requires tremendous courage. Because otherwise, you know, we're so familiar with afflictions and anger and they arise yeah just go along with them you know i want this never question why i want this if my motivation is good if i'm using too much of the world's resources if i really need it if you know there's greed in my mind never question it get angry at somebody and Talk bad about them to somebody else. We never question it. That person did something to me. I am justified in talking about them the way I do. Yeah? So to actually stop and question these things and ask ourselves, you know, are they beneficial or not? Are they bringing the kind of results I want or not? That takes a whole lot of courage because it's, it's breaking the pattern of living on automatic. Yeah. It's kind of like, you know, you you come here to the Abbey, and, you know, everything's so different, and you have to break your, your old habits. I mean, maybe if you're used to living in your own home, like, you know, whoever you're living with, well, you know, they pick up after you, they do the dishes, they do the... Cooking. They put the new roll of toilet paper on, a, on the thing, you know. They're the ones who look around and see what needs to be done and, and does it. And, you know, we're just, you know, we just sit there, we're at home, and we, we don't look around and see what needs to be done. We don't volunteer. We don't step up to the plate because we're not used to it. We're just sitting there and, you know, if, well, if nobody asks me to do anything, you know, I don't have to do anything, and just to have a good time because our whole life you know other people have basically done stuff for us and then you know you come here and and all of a sudden somebody asks you to do something gee they're asking me to do something you know or maybe they start looking at you Like, you should be looking around to see if something needs to be done, because it's quite obvious that something needs to be done, and you're just sitting there, you know? (laughs) Yeah, do we do that sometimes? Yeah? There's things that need to be done, and we just sit there, we're chatting, we're drinking our tea, Other people are working like mad to make lunch and chop vegetables and clean up and pass out the present thing and pass out... The, the sheets and do this and do that and everything. Well, we're just sitting there and not even thinking about maybe we could do something. Yeah? So to actually, you know, have the courage to, to look at ourselves and, and say, you know, how much do I just kind of glide along here and, you know, take other people's efforts for kindness? And how much do I really you know kind of join in and help? how much do I really want to do I really want to help, and how much do I want to just sit here and let everybody work? you know that takes a lot of courage to just notice it and challenge it and you know start to kind of nudge ourselves in in some ways
2: yeah. I was just worldly courage mm-hmm. versus uh,
0: dharma courage. Mm-hmm. Um, is it something like event-based courage versus sustainable courage? In some ways, yeah. I mean, ordinary courage is usually we think of it in a particular event, yeah. yeah. But sometimes we say somebody's courageous. It often refers to physical challenges. So
2: we we within worldly concerns versus Dharma courage is like tuning one, so you need to have a sustainable kind of fuel
0: to kind of make this fire burn. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Dharma courage is definitely taking us out of samsara. Worldly courage is often done to create a good image with other people. Isn't it? Oh, Tarzan. I'm going to save everybody.
1: You are Tarzan. Right? Oh, oh, Tarzan. Tar- oh,
0: Tar- Latter- 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, there, there's so many different th- Different kinds of courage, you know. People, and that's why I asked that last question that I hadn't thrown in about, um, you know, f- kind of foolish courage or false courage or, you know, reckless courage, you know, kind of when we have bravado but we don't really know what we're doing, <laughs> you
1: yeah. mm-hmm.
2: mm-hmm. um, know. Can it be possible that um, you can mix it? And for example, you have an abbey, and as uh, people don't care for it, it's kind of maybe not. Yeah, okay, you can see it in a drama sense, but maybe more see it in a worldly sense. It's got very, it's getting very dirty, and the people are only studying, maybe and practicing, and the abbey is getting more and more dirty, and. So do you think about some people maybe only taking care? Okay, they are cleaning because they don't want that the visitors uh, have uh, the impression, you know, and they want to invite them to get at least the dharma. Mm-hmm. So these parts, what do you think about that? Can can other the that's coming together a little
0: bit? So, so you're asking, um, mm-hmm. I don't have a quick question. I get the different parts, but I'm not yes. sure how they link.
1: Um, that you need the awareness for um,
2: worldly concerns concern to, to practice the Dharma in the
1: right way. Ah,
0: okay. Yeah. Okay, so do we need the awareness of worldly concerns, that keeping the place clean, you know, in order to practice Dharma in the right way? We definitely need to take care of our environment and take care of our body. Yeah? The practicing Dharma doesn't mean you just forget about the physical world altogether and, you know, start looking like a, and smelling like a, I won't even say, um, you know, it doesn't mean that. We still have to do the daily things, you know, keep the place clean and cut vegetables and stuff like that, but we try and do it with a different motivation. So that's the whole key you know and that's where the thought training practices are so valuable because we have to do all these little chores and, and and daily activities but we're trying to train our minds so that we do them with a different motivation and in that way we don't make this gap between Oh, well, practicing Dharma when I'm sitting on the meditation cushion and I have my nose in a book and I'm, you know, doing mantra and but, you know, scrubbing the floor. Eh, I'm a Dharma practitioner. I don't have to do that. That's, that's quite a dualistic mind. I mean, it's beyond our ordinary dualism. <laughs> you know, it's like, Huh? Yeah, where where actually, you know, if we are practicing the Dharma, you're putting bodhicitta into practice. Okay, you have to keep the floor clean. Somebody's got to clean it. I might as well be the one, you know. But I can clean the floor with a happy mind. And I can clean the floor thinking that I'm offering service to others and so on. Okay? So instead of dividing things into, I like to do this and I don't like to do that, and if I do the things I don't like, I'm I'm only going to be unhappy when I do them, to be able to do the things we don't like to do, but do them with a happy mind. Yeah? And how can we do them with a happy mind? Because we're changing our motivation. Because, you know, if nobody did any kind of daily things here. I mean, we could try that one day and see, you know. Actually, you you had that idea to try it one time, that, that we'd go for a week or two and people only do what they feel like doing. So somebody only cooks if they feel like doing it. You only come to session if they feel like doing it. You only clean up if you feel like doing it. Everybody does whatever they want to do when they feel like doing it without any disregard for anything and have an experiment and see how it goes yeah but we felt we should do that when there weren't any visitors <laughs> <laughs> so we're waiting for a time when there's no visitors and then we're going to do that okay but it's an interesting thing isn't it you know because our, our mind is is so sometimes confined into categories and, you know, I don't feel like doing. It. I don't want to do it. I don't know. Why should I do it? And so, what would happen if we all just gave way to that mind of "I do what I want to do when I feel like doing it"? Yeah, what
2: would happen? Yeah. I want to do you when you do that. <laughs> <laughs> right? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh-huh. in that kind of house in college. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah. And think back
2: to your, your roommate days you in college with big houses old people who did what they wanted to do. Yeah. What they like, what right. like. yeah. 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 Actually the the reasoning behind it was more to combat the mind that says I do what I do because I'm supposed to and if I don't everyone will criticize me. Reasons, but the opposite. Okay. Yeah. Oh, it was for both reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the fear too. Mm-hmm. Things not done. The person that likes to, you know, things have to be all done, and and to feel that like my world is crumbling, and you know. Yeah. It's an experiment. I did a weekend like that it wasn't the same purpose but we were doing everything that we used to do like eat soup, uh, soup walk you know, feed it we were doing everything exactly mm-hmm. uh, yeah it was very very
0: interesting yeah, yeah I that. but also like you said it works for the the thing that I, I do things only for so because I'm Afraid of getting criticized. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's clearly not a good motivation. And not doing them because we don't want to do them, that's also not a very good motivation. So this kind of exercise fits both of those things. Mm -hmm. Not to get
2: too far away from the original topic of courage, but in terms of motivation and doing, offering service in an atmosphere like this, wouldn't you say it's true that because this is a holy place, Perfect. of Dharma and then the purpose of this faith is to serve and to give. So that offering service and doing something mundane and like scrubbing the floor is not really the same as when you do it at home because mm-hmm. it's almost like not to be caught up in like how much merit I'm going to get or you're going to get but don't you think the merit is different? You're, mm-hmm. The karma you're creating by scrubbing the floor here is very different and especially if you're doing mantras or trying to generate a beneficial motivation. Mm -hmm. So, like, in terms of the the positive
0: seeds you're planting online, are much more powerful. Okay. Yeah. Would you say Yeah, yeah. I would say that's true. Um, We often talk about holy objects or holy fields, and that uh, you know, because there's different fields of merit, and uh, you know, the sangha, your spiritual teacher, the three jewels. Those are a special field of merit. So anything we do to offer service there, the merit's much stronger than if we're just doing it, you know, for ourselves. Of course, creating merit depends on many things, not just the object, but also our motivation very much. But especially, you're right, around a community like this, it's going to be kind of more powerful than when you do it for your family. But that doesn't mean that you don't do it for your family. Yeah, it doesn't mean you, when you're here you become Mr. and Miss Goody Two Shoes, and when you're you know outside of here, then you just you know forget it. Okay. Yeah, this will be the last question, then. I was kind of wondering what
2: people thought about how to develop a place that courage.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, well, maybe a few more questions, comments then. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about how to develop a selfless courage? What do we need to do? The short answer is practicing the path. Exchanging <laughs> <laughs> our own happiness for the suffering of others. exchanging okay. our own happiness for the suffering of others. What about
2: contemplating uh, what do you mean? Contemplating the suffering of others, mm-hmm. especially for me, I'm mm-hmm. involved in the discussions, in the context but um, I feel more in touch with what seems like closer to a bodhisattva mm-hmm. I Think about samsara and the suffering that's going on right now to so speak.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so, contemplating what samsara is and samsaric suffering helps you develop compassion. Yeah, and compassion gives you courage. Yeah. What other ideas do people have, or did you draw a blank for
1: developing mm-hmm. Bodhisattva's courage? Uh,
2: maybe when you are afraid of something, to really analyze it, and when you um, get down to the very basis of it, you can see that fears are really. There's no reason to be afraid um, when
1: you're looking at a whole
0: new picture. Yeah. So instead of just giving into fears, like, I'm afraid of that, I can't do it, I can't do it, go away, to actually stop and look at it and say, What am I afraid of? Why am I afraid of that? Is my fear really something based on the reality of the situation? Or, yeah, do some analysis there. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, see the interconnectedness between, um, between the world and people and, so. mm-hmm. and um, to see open if you can develop it to uh, all the emptiness.
0: To emptiness?
1: The emptiness. Yes. Yeah,
0: yeah. So seeing interconnectedness mm-hmm. and then using that to realize emptiness, it's a very good way to destroy the hindrances to having courage. Okay. People feel a little bit fortified, maybe a little bit more
1: courageous.
0: (laughs) Are you just going to? This Holiness always talks about that to practice the Dharma, we have to have a very strong uh, sense of I, not a sense of an inherently existent I. But a very strong kind of sense of I in the the sense of very strong confidence, very strong energy, very strong, you know, yes, I can do this, or I can at least try and do it. Some, you know, something like that, instead of giving up before we even try, which is so often what we usually do. Or maybe you don't do give up before you try. Okay. Let's spend a minute and develop a courageous motivation and not put uh, bounds on ourselves, not uh, put artificial limitations that our mind makes up on ourselves. But to really consider that we have the potential to become a fully enlightened Buddha. And if we create the causes and conditions, then we can and will become one. And so knowing that, then let's go back creating those causes and conditions. One of them being pure ethical conduct. And so we want to learn about ethical conduct in the context of monastic life. Today we talked about the six harmonies you know, and how they bring us together as individuals who are practicing the path who want to live harmoniously together so that each of our individual practices can also advance. Okay, And so um, I want to talk a little bit today about uh, monastic life reflects a certain kind of commitment, you know, and what is that commitment, so that we can be aware of it and generate, you know, the, the wish for this. Now, I know the word commitment is a dangerous word nowadays. It, I call it the C word, and people are more afraid of commitment than of cancer, it seems. But... Um, you know, really, people, commitment, commitment. No, thank you, you know. I want my freedom. I want to do this, little here, there, you know. But, and so thinking that if we don't have any commitments, we're freer. That we'll get further if we don't have any commitments. I think there's a time and place not to make commitments, and there's a time and place to make commitments. Because making commitments helps us go deeper into something. It stops the search around. It stops the 31 flavors trip. And it's it's saying, I found a flavor I like and I want to really go into it and really get to know this. Okay? So we have to be comfortable with the commitments we make and feel that they're good ones and that we're ready to make them. But... Also, we need to uh, deal with that mind that says, that thinks that commitment means curtailing our freedom. Yeah, because it's a very prominent notion in the West nowadays. Yeah. Uh, or, Or feeling that commitment doesn't really mean anything. You know, like marriage commitment now. Doesn't. You know, people promise I'm going to stay with you until death do us part. But, you know, it doesn't mean much. Over half the marriages end up in divorce. So, you know, how much are people really making a commitment? Or do you see what I'm saying? And so, um, you know, to really spend some time, maybe we should do a whole discussion session Mm -hmm. on commitment, okay? Yeah, and what are the benefits what are the disadvantages because uh, some people really are quite terrified of making commitments some people make commitments too soon without really looking at things clear enough Yeah, some people make a commitment and then feel trapped in their commitment and some people make a commitment and feel like they have so much freedom because the commitment has gotten rid of all the other distracting things so that's the commitment to monastic life the kind of feeling you want to have when you make that commitment that it's getting rid of all the distracting things that are taking you away from the thing that is really most important to you okay so uh, in monastic life you know our our commitment to our precepts which are taken for um, for life you know, in the Theravada tradition, they have a, uh, a short-term motivation. All the young men get ordained for six weeks or three months uh, in their life, even if they're already married, because you know? uh, it's considered good karma to, to do that. and They get an experience of living as a monk, which is quite helpful. But um, in the Tibetan tradition and also the Chinese tradition, uh, your ordination is taken for life. So in order to receive it, you have to have a, a mental state that says, I'm going to keep this for my life. Of course, if after you've ordained, something comes up and there's a difficult situation or you know, somehow your mind is, something changes in your mind, you can give back your ordination. But to take it, you have to have that determination to keep it you know, for the duration of your life. Um, Because somehow, you know, saying I'm going to do that, then you just channel your mind in that direction. Because sometimes when you have so many different options, then it's like, well, I'll do this, but... Oh, that looks pretty good. I should go to... Oh, yeah, this is really nice. Uh, I'm bored with this. That one over there might be good. Oh, yeah. You see what I mean? And so sometimes... um, uh, Some psychologists did some research, I'm remembering now, um, about choices, you know, and how people, at least in the U.S., would keep choices open, even if it was detrimental for the final purpose that they were going after. They devised some kind of game that... You know, if you limited your choices and made commitments, you would actually do better in the game. But many people could not, you know, do that, and so they would, at the expense of doing well in the game, they would keep all their choices open. Interesting, isn't it?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. And
0: you know, and I I wonder how much this is something new in society, because it seemed to me that you know maybe a hundred years ago people really valued commitments more or you know maybe they needed each other more so they they hung in there I mean if you're on a covered wagon you you know I guess you could say well I'm fed up with you guys bye (laughs) you know I'd rather do something else now and ride off into the wilderness and you know, Utah and see who you bump into. But you know, usually in that kind of situation you've made a commitment, you know, for your own well being and for the well being of others. People stuck together, you know, even even if it wasn't so good, just because they all needed each other. Okay. In any case, um, in monastic life it you know, our our central focus is uh, full enlightenment for the benefit of sentient beings. So, manasal life is indicative that that is the focus of our life. The focus of our life is not family. It's not, you know, cultivating intimate romantic relationships. It's not procreating and, you know, having kids. It's not uh, being successful in our job and having fame and a good reputation. Our, our life is really focused on our spiritual practice and on enlightenment, okay? So it clarifies all that. It's like, okay, I'm not interested in that stuff. I'm Interested in this, okay? And so it involves really making the path central to our lives. Yeah. And it's a, uh, also a commitment to non-harmfulness and to self-restraint where it comes to restraining ourselves from speaking in in a harmful way, acting in a harmful way, and even thinking in a harmful way. Okay? So it's a path of self-restraint and non-harmfulness that is voluntarily taken up. Not because anybody is forcing us, not because we're going to get punished if we harm somebody, but because we ourselves have decided that we don't want to harm anybody that it's not it doesn't correspond to our values and how we want to be as a human being and the effect that we want to have on the world okay Um, it also monastic life is is indicative that we're committed to benefiting others and that we want to help society Mm -hmm. we want to make a valuable contribution to society so, in our tradition, you know, monastic life is not, I'm concerned with my own enlightenment, and anything that doesn't help my own enlightenment, bye, go away, you know. But we're really having a much bigger picture about, um, you know, the welfare of all living beings and how we can contribute to it in the long term. Okay. Um, monastic life is also. It shows a commitment to not being a consumer and to not being materialistic, okay? And to live this way ourselves and by doing so present, it it becomes a challenge to the values of society, of consumerism and materialism, okay? So it's a commitment to a simple lifestyle um, because the precepts, Really narrow what we can possess. Uh, In fact, there's 13 things that as a monastic we're allowed to possess. Yeah, you know, our robes, our bowl, a needle and thread, a water strainer, a bathing cloth. You know, different things like this that are required for daily use. But beyond that, you know, we're not really to consider anything ours. And so that really changes things. Yeah. Even, you know, in the Abbey, we say, oh, this is my computer. Actually, that's just so that we can identify the computer. All the computers belong to the Abbey. Okay? And so all the things we use belong to the Abbey. Therefore, you know, we're, we're, we keep them in good condition out of consideration for the entire community, out of consideration for something that's bigger than ourselves.
2: Because we
0: all know if something's just ours, then "Eh, I don't feel like cleaning it, I don't feel like taking care of it. Eh." You know, we do that. But, you know, when, when we're in a community, we can't have that attitude because everything belongs to other people. And so out of respect, then we have to to take care of the things. And, and you know, so with this thing of not only self-restraint about anger, but also self-restraint about possessiveness, about, you know, I want this, I need this, we have to have this. Okay? And so a mind stream even, and we can see this, you know, when we decide as a community how to spend things, we don't just like... Well, there's lots of money, let's go, let's spend it here, let's spend it there. Yeah, because whatever money as a community we have isn't really our money, it's the benefactor's money. And so we have a responsibility to each and every single person who makes a donation to the Abbey to use the money wisely, to use it correctly, to make good use of whatever we buy with it and not just spoil it and treat treat it in a haphazard way. So it's really showing, you know, this kind of... It's, we have to have a bigger mind, you know. It's not just about me. We have to have that much bigger mind of um, not being a consumer, not being materialistic, not being casual and careless with things. Because yeah? this is all, you know, it's all involved in Dharma practice in one way or another. Okay, and so uh, monastic life is, is also involved with going beyond our own individualism and um, and the the craving for instant self-gratification. So it's learning how to not get what you want when you want it and be okay with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, whenever I, I speak to you know. People in society, when I talk about bringing up kids, I often tell them, you know, one of the greatest gifts you can give your kid is to teach them how to deal with the frustration of not getting what you want and how to deal with disappointment. And many parents never think of that as something that they need to teach their kids. Instead, especially nowadays, parents think, I want my kids to have everything that I didn't have, I want my kids to just have that, you know, everything. To not want for anything. But in having that mind and getting everything for their kids, then the kids grow up and they don't know how to deal with frustration. And they don't know how to deal with disappointment. And they don't know how to work together with other people for something common, because they're so used to everything being given to them. Okay? So, monastic life is you know, a, a change in this regard. And it's, it's really uh, saying that, you know, I'm going on beyond just what I feel like doing, what I want, what I think, my, my own instant gratification. And I'm going to think about what's better for others, you know, starting with the community, expanding to society, going beyond that to all sentient beings. Okay? So a monastic life entails that change in how we look at things. Yeah. And it's not a change that comes about easily and quickly. Okay, So it's not like you have to have uh, done all of that before you get ordained. Otherwise, you, know, you never get ordained. But on the other hand, you have to have done some work in these areas because and see these areas as something very valuable, because if you don't, then you're going to have difficulty after you ordain when you're called upon to keep your precepts. Yeah? And it'll, it'll be difficult to keep the precepts when we don't know how to deal with frustration and disappointment. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then... um there's certain so that's talking a little bit about kind of some of the commitments or the ways that we're, that we're channeling our energy in the master does it push buttons? it should <laughs> <laughs> hmm? but it's good when our buttons are pushed then it gives us things to reflect on it gives us something to to really use and say, okay, what am I thinking and where am I stuck and how can I release this tightness inside me and really open okay, then when you become a monastic there's different changes that you undergo that uh, differentiate yourself from a lay person yeah And so some some of the internal changes I just described, I'm gonna talk about some of the external ones now, but how those external changes also relate to internal ones that we make. So one is a change in our appearance, yeah. So, you know, as a lay person, you wear clothes that you like, you wear clothes that make you look good, You want to show off your body. You want to be attractive.
1: You you know,
0: there's this thing in the back of the mind that I have to be attractive, otherwise people won't like me, you know. And I think for men and women, it happens in different ways. But, you know, a lot of concern about how we look so that we can make sure we attract a romantic partner. And if I don't look good enough, then I'm going to be attracted and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, as a monastic, you give up all those external things that are going to make somebody attracted to you. Like your hair, and your stylish clothes, and, you know, jewelry, perfumes, moving your body in a certain way. So, you, you let go of all those things. You really change your appearance. Uh, So this has to do with changing the mind. Yeah. Because it has to do with... uh, And here, maybe there's some courage involved. Because a lot of us were uh, brought up that, you know, you have to look a certain way. And if you don't look a certain way, you know, people are not going to like you. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to get, you have the clothes that everybody's wearing, you have stylish clothes, and, you know, and you can't have gray hair. For goodness sakes, don't have gray hair. Dye your hair. Anything but gray hair. Yeah? And you have to make your hair attractive, and you have to this and that and the other thing. And and people really feeling quite afraid as their body ages, you know, and you're not we're not getting younger and more attractive we're getting older with more wrinkles and more gray hair and more bulges in, in the wrong places you know and so learning to, to be okay with all of that there's a change in the mind of really having to accept our body and and really feeling that and when I, when I go into high schools so you know to talk the kids are like how can you shave your head, you know, and wear those kind of clothes? And uh, and I say, you know, if people are going to like me, it's not going to be because of how I look, it's going to be because of some inner beauty. And the kids are like, <laughs> <laughs>
1: you, know?
0: you mean you can like people for inner beauty? All the TV and advertising is telling me I only like people for how they look on the outside. That's dangerous. That's, that's, that's really sad, isn't it? Don't you think it's sad? When we grow up in a society where we're taught by the advertising that we are not good enough, that nobody's going to like us unless we look a certain way, that we have to buy certain clothes and, you know, force our body into a certain kind of shape, and dye our hair, or if you're a guy, get some hair, and, you know, because you can't be bald, you know, and all this stuff, and as if, you know, who we are is just our body. I mean, I think that's so sad, and you see teenagers so obsessed with their body. and and then nobody thinking of cultivating inner beauty inner beauty, what in the world (laughs) but isn't inner beauty what's actually going to be satisfying in our relationships with people it's somebody's inner beauty that's, that's going to attract us to them and make a valuable friendship that lasts over time okay um There's a very cute story that, that, well, cute, um, that Venerable William tells in in Choosing Simplicity about why the uh, change in appearance is necessary. So the story was, of course, about one of these naughty nuns. And um, she, (laughs) although these precepts pertain to men too, so there might have been some naughty monks in them, in the works as well anyway this one man uh, went to visit one of her friends who was a laywoman and the laywoman was about to go take a shower you know and go bathe and so she had taken off her earrings and she had had all her fine you know dresses and earrings and decorations and everything and she, she you know was taking them off because she was going to go bathe so she asked the, the nun to wait for her and, and they would have tea so she went off to bathe so the nun is standing there oh gee huh, I wonder what it would be, look like and she put on the sari and you know the beautiful cloth and she put on the earrings and she put all of this on and then she was a little bit tired so she lay down on the bed you know and then the the husband came home and Thought, oh, that's my very beautiful wife on the bed, and went to embrace her, and then said, Ah, you have no hair! (laughs) You realize it's a nun! And because this guy was a Buddhist follower, he was very upset about having almost, you know, embraced a nun. And, and so he said to the boy, you better do something with these people.
1: And, uh, <laughs>
0: and so, you know, there's the commitment, you know, the, the precept that you don't wear lay clothes and you don't put on jewelry and perfumes and also a precept that you don't lay down in a lay person's house without informing them, you know, that you're going to do that. Um, okay. But uh, it's, you know, there's a a change in appearance that that you undergo. Now, in a Buddhist society, the change of appearance was, you know, nobody bats an eye with that. In Western society, you know, people kind of look at you. So you have to be willing in some way to, you know, accept some stares. And I know sometimes when I, I, you know, somebody might be inviting me out for a meal and I'll be in a restaurant and they'll go,
1: do you realize
0: a lot of people are staring at you? And it's like, you know, after 33 years, no, I don't. (laughs) You know, I don't think of that at all. But the person I'm with is, I'm very aware of being with somebody who's getting stared at. So, you you know, you have to kind of get over that and be at ease with it, you know, and not be self-conscious.
1: It's just, you know...
0: And like I told you the other day, every once in a while, somebody tells you they like your (laughs) outfit. Okay. um, Then there's also a a second thing we change is a change in name. Okay. So rather than going by the name our parents gave us, uh, we go by the name that our spiritual teacher gives us. Okay. And. and so that, you know, when we change our name, we have a different self-image. A name is just a sound, isn't it? But, you know, if we change that sound that we associate ourselves with, it changes our self-image. It changes our feeling of, of who we are. Okay? So we change our name. Um, there's also a change in livelihood or occupation. Yeah. Because we're not... Um, uh, supposed to do business or handle money or you know or act as a servant for lay people you know doing household tasks for, for lay people uh, we're not permitted to do that and so uh, you know it involves really a, a change in your quote quote occupation because you're going from home to homeless yeah. So you're going from having a paid job into really trusting that other people will keep you alive. That's what you're doing, you know. And it's like, okay, I'm not going to buy food and I'm really going to trust that other people keep me alive. Because you know, they see something valuable in, in what I'm doing and how I'm doing it. Yeah. Instead of okay, I'm going to work for an occupation and then you know I have to earn so much and I save so much and then I have so much I can spend. and then you know, this sense of power that we have through having money. Now each uh, tradition handles the, the issue of money in a very different way. Actually, according to our precepts, we're not supposed to touch gold, silver uh, or valuables such as money so like in the Theravada tradition they don't touch any of those but they have a lay person that will accept it on their behalf you know, or they have a committee of lay people who accept uh, money on behalf of the Sangha mm-hmm. and who spend it so they're not involved in touching it per se um, in the Chinese tradition uh, people will handle money but in a very very careful way you know, and there's a lot of um, restrictions that you're taught. You don't just go into a store and buy something you like, and you don't just go buying you know, window shopping and buying presents for people here and people there. What you buy is strictly limited to, you know, certain things that are not provided by the monastery. But most of the temples and monasteries provide most of the items for um, for the monastics. In the Tibetan tradition, people Uh, very often have their own money and they spend it every way they want to and so sometimes you know i don't think that's so good because when there's not any restraints in just the general way that people do it then you wind up and i've seen people very much just relate to money as as lay people do you know oh i feel like getting this and go out to the store and buy it i feel like getting that go out to the store and buy it and that's not that doesn't fit with what I was talking about about not being you know not falling into consumer mentality and, and materialistic mentality so here at the Abbey what we do um, oh and I should say some monasteries uh, I know Thich Nhat Hanh does this and then some Chinese monasteries too you give all your money away before you ordain some of them say you give the money to the temple some of them say you don't give the money to the temple you give it to other people okay but they say give your money away so that you're really making yourself dependent Um, in setting up the abbey I talked with uh, a number of, of people about this whole issue of money And this sounds really crazy, but they they told me, you know, you have to be very careful about telling people to give their money away because Americans like to sue people. And later on, they could get upset with you and sue you for making them give their money away. So so what we said is, you know, you, you can keep any personal money you have, but you can only spend it on certain things. You know, health insurance, uh, medical and dental care, uh, travel for either, uh, for, you know, teachings. And we hope that families pay for travel if you go to visit them. Although I see that many monastics are quite hesitant to ask their family for that money for travel. And so they pay for it themselves. Um, uh, Making offerings, you know. And that's kind of it. yeah. So we don't go out and buy something for our own room because we need something. Or we don't go out and, yeah, just buy something that we especially need. Um, you know, the, there's toothpaste and hand lotion and all that stuff that's offered to the Abbey. And unless you're sick and you really need some special toothpaste or hand lotion, you know, because of the you know, your skin or your gums, then, you know, we practice uh, being satisfied with whatever brand of toothpaste, whatever brand of hand lotion people offer, you know? And so uh, it's a good practice because sometimes it's not the kind that that you prefer and then you really see how picky your mind is. You know, I don't like that hand lotion. It's sticky. (laughs) I like this one. I don't like that toothpaste I don't want to use Colgate that's what rednecks use I want to use Tom's I have an image to keep up here you know because all the people I hung out with are politically liberal and everybody uses Tom's stuff and so I don't want to use you know Colgate or Crest you know you see this kind of mind and attachment to reputation That
1: was very good
0: you know um, uh, monastics are not allowed to to, um, to be helpers, to to act as a servant or a uh, a caretaker in laypeople's homes, cleaning the dishes, cleaning the floors, taking care of the kids, doing all of that kind of thing. Um, at the time of the Buddha, there were some nuns who did that because, you know, in ancient Indian culture. You know, who cleans up, who takes care of the kids, who cooks, who does all these things, the women, you know. And so lay people would want the nuns to come, you know, if if I'm going to give alms to you, first you come and clean my house, and then I'll give you some alms. Of course, they don't do that with the men. Mm. Yeah, just with the women. And, uh, and the Buddha made a precept against that, because... Uh, the lay people weren't respecting the bhikshunis. You know, they had in their mind, oh, the nuns, they're just like my wife. And women in ancient India were definitely second class. I mean, the values are still there in India. It's just slightly beginning to change. Um, you know, uh, and so they weren't respecting the nuns, but you saying, oh, it's like my wife, you know, give them something to do, give them this, give them that, you know. And and the Buddhist said, No, you can't treat Bhikshunis like that. Yeah? So that was quite revolutionary, I think. Yeah. Um okay. So yeah, so the, the change of appearance, change in dress, like I to say, wearing robes. Um the robes are very good for our mind when we put on robes we remember what the focus of our life is. These things that I went through earlier (coughs) at the beginning of the talk, (coughs) when we put on robes, we remember our commitment. We remember the central values and central purpose of our life. So the robes are are a real reminder to us of what we have decided through with our own wisdom of what's important. And also the robes, act as a symbol to other people. Yeah? They they let them know, oh, there's people in, in this world that are interested in looking beyond, you know, internet and television and, and materialism and consumerism and these kinds of things. There's people in this world who are actually contemplating the, the meaning of life and death. The people in this world who are trying to change their minds. And so... You know, it can be very inspiring for lay people to see people in robes. And, and I must say, I'm, I'm sad that the Catholic nuns don't wear their robes. I, I like when I'm in airports seeing Catholic nuns, you know, and going, oh, you know, kind of, there, there's a sister. You know, I feel some, some camaraderie when I see some of them. And uh, and I think it sets an example for society, and you know makes people think a little bit about things. On a practical level, of wearing robes lets people know that you are not game for sex, and you're not game for romance. You know, so it it acts as a sign to other people. Hey, you know, I've committed my life to my spiritual practice don't flirt with me don't come on with me don't chat me up I'm not available you know and so please you know get that through your thick skull Uh, you know say it more nicely but you know um, yeah it's, it's, it's a, a sign that no I'm not interested in that I'm living my life for a different purpose and a different reason and so it challenges lay people to relate to you in a different way yeah and so you know women are not going to talk to you about the latest clothes if you're a woman if you're a guy they aren't going to talk to you about you know where you got your suit and your you know, shoes and your cufflinks and how many buttons you have on your suit and that kind of stuff or they aren't going to talk to you about your <laughs> athletic equipment and where you got it and these kinds of things and um, you know it's, it's, it's like really a challenge and, and it's quite interesting you know because some people have so much difficulty relating to the opposite sex in any other way except in a sexually tinged way, you know, it's like that's just the way they're habituated to relate to somebody, you know, of the opposite sex, or if you're gay, to somebody of your own sex. Okay, but it's just kind of they relate to people all the time in that way, and then all of a sudden, you know, they can't relate to us in this way, and I think it's it can be quite a, a good challenge. For other people to stop looking beyond seeing people as sexual objects. Yeah, because so often we do that, you know. People are just, we think of ourselves as a sexual object, we think of other people as a sexual object, and that's so sad. It's so confining, you know. I mean, animals have sex, there's nothing special. About it you don 't need a precious human life to see somebody else as a sexual object. you know animals do it so uh, you know it 's kind of a call to 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 uh, you know really go go beyond that animal nature and go beyond all that societal conditioning that nowadays says sex is the ultimate in High experiences, you know. Did did you ask the dog? Is that your ultimate bliss? You know, when you look at it that way, <laughs> yeah. Then you just see how absurd our society is. Okay, so there's that kind of change that that goes on with you too how, you know very much how you relate to others and how others are relate to you and if they relate to you in a way that's not suitable you know then you stay away from them not in a not in a way of you know oh you're a horrible person but it's just like my life is directed towards something else I'm really not interested and and Although I do have the seed of attachment in me, so I'm not going to sit there and pretend like this vibe isn't going on. You know, because as long as we have the seed of attachment in it, in us, it's possible that our mind gets out of control and gets attached to somebody else. So, for you know, to protect our own vows, to protect the other person, then we just keep our distance and. Or we ask somebody else to intercede to inform the other person, you know, how it's proper to relate to monks and nuns, something like that. Oh, there's more to talk about and we're out of time. Okay, we will continue tomorrow.